Welcome to the Right on Crime podcast, featuring prosecutorial innovation in America. I'm your host, Kurt Altman. And I have to tell you, I'm honored today uh, because we have a special guest who came all the way to Austin, Texas to talk to us uh, about things that are happening in Kentucky. Our guest is the Commonwealth Attorney uh, for the 16th Circuit in Kentucky, uh, which covers Kenton County, Kentucky. Started his career in 1998, I think, as a Assistant Commonwealth Attorney, moved on to private practice for a while, got back into public service, and was elected to the Commonwealth Attorney in 2006, began serving uh, in 2007. He's on his third term. Obviously doing a good job, and interestingly, he's a volunteer firefighter. Don't know how he does it all, um, but that's what he is. Welcome, please, everybody, Rob Sanders from Kentucky. Rob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Kurt. It's a pleasure. Well, I, I love that you came to Austin uh, to have a chat with us. I know that you were potentially going to shop for some uh, some cowboy boots, so I hope that worked out for you. <laughs> it did. I hit up the Lou Casey store while I was here, and uh, I don't think they make a finer cowboy boot on the planet. So it's been a great trip to Austin. I've been to Dallas before. I've been to Houston before, but this is my first time in Austin. I've really enjoyed my my stay so far well you got here at a good time it's not too humid yet um pretty nice weather so i'm glad you're enjoying it um you know i failed to mention that uh rob is also the 2023 what is it carol m redford award winner to being for being the best prosecutor in kentucky so congrats it, on that thank you i was uh honored by my colleagues the carol m redford award is sort of our lifetime achievement award in the kentucky commonwealth attorneys association so Knowing especially some of the great prosecutors in Kentucky that have come before me that I've seen over the years win that award, it made it extra special this year when uh, when they gave it to me. Well, that's great, man. Uh, you know, congratulations on that. And, and that takes me into, uh, you know, where we want to go. You've been a prosecutor now. You've been an elected prosecutor now since 2006. I guess you entered office, what, January 1? January 1 of 2007. 2007. Um, you had a career before that. What made you go back into public service? Because I'm sure you're making a ton of money. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely not for the money. Uh, that's the one thing I'm absolutely certain about. Um, I was a prosecutor for two years in the same office that I now run. I did primarily sex crimes prosecution. Um, was young and dumb coming out of law school. And the then Commonwealth attorney fellow named Don Burring said, well, I'll give you the job, but you understand that the, the guy who left, the one whose position you're going to be taking, did the sex crimes. Nobody else wants to do those. So if you take this job, you got to do the sex crimes. I had no idea at the time that sex crimes meant uh, mostly crimes against children, that most of the victims I was going to be talking to were, in fact, kids. But I thought, great, you know, this means I'm putting people in prison for 20 to 50 years or life in most cases. So I wanted to, the biggest, most challenging cases I could get. This guy was crazy enough to give them to me. Uh, so I was all over it. Much different job than I had anticipated. But, you know, in, in the end, I wouldn't change a thing because it was easily some of the most rewarding cases I ever worked on were when I was an assistant. Did a little bit of everything else, too, um, but eventually learned a hard lesson about working in a small political office that when you work for an elected official, your job is only as secured as the elected official's job. My boss lost his reelection in 2000. So come January 1 of 2001, the guy that came in fired the entire office, top to bottom, secretaries, assistant prosecutors, detectives, uh, victim advocates, you name it, we're all out the door. It's very lucky I had a place to land because my father's also an attorney. So I went into private practice with him. 
but I hated my clients. I mean, for the most part, I was doing, whether it was a divorce case or a criminal defense case or a business case, a vast majority of my clients were people that irritated me. You, you know, I do criminal defense work too now, Rob. So, uh, you know, I won't get into <laughs> into clients, but I know what it's like yeah. uh, dealing with clients. You know, I said, I think we were talking earlier, the law is a human business, right? Yeah. Um, but the criminal defense part, eventually... I saw you went back into public service. I did. It, I just didn't get prosecution out of my system. So about three years into that six years in private practice, I knew I was going to run for the position I now hold. Tell me how, if at all, your experience, even in those couple of years uh, as a criminal defense lawyer and representing individuals that, you know, I, I dare say do stupid things, oh, maybe yeah. not totally <laughs> evil things or planned things, but certainly stupid, uh, influenced the way you look at running a prosecutor's office and prosecuting cases. Well, I think, number one, I think it makes me a better trial attorney, um, makes me a better prosecutor because I can anticipate defenses. I know what I was thinking as a defense attorney, what I would want to prove or the flaw in the case I would want to take advantage of when I was a defense attorney. And now I try and eliminate that, work very closely with the police agencies in my jurisdiction, especially on major cases, to make sure we eliminate most of those defenses before the case ever gets to its first court appearance. Um but I also understand what criminal defense attorneys go through. You know, I, the only people in the world that get lied to more than the police are the defense attorneys. Um, I also know, you know, how pressing it is for defense attorneys to do things like get paid. Uh, that's always nice. Um, it helps. Yeah. You know, so we're we're very agreeable when it comes to like releasing bond assignments and things of that nature to try and work with our defense attorneys because, you know, one of the things. Um, that I learned from my predecessor is that the system doesn't work uh, with a bad prosecutor. And, and if he didn't have as many troubles as he did during his term, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. But he was uh, voted, there was a vote of no confidence by every police FOP union in him. And at the same time, the judges quit accepting his plea agreements and the system just fell apart there was a huge backlog you know the defense attorneys couldn't do their job because you can have a tough on crime prosecutor but as long as he's predictable you can work with him as long as you can tell your clients what to expect you can still get paid as a, as a criminal defense attorney but you need predictability you need to be able to tell the client what to expect because that's probably the biggest fear those criminal defendants have is the fear of the unknown going in so i'm the opposite i'm very predictable they know what my policies are. They know what crime I come down hard on. Um, they know what the terms of my plea agreements are going to be. Most defense attorneys can probably look at an arrest citation and tell their client what my plea offer is going to be. How, how big is your office? I have 10 uh, assistant Commonwealth attorneys that work for me. They're all full-time prosecutors, um, So, uh, including myself, 11. I still handle a, a full caseload in addition to all the administrative tasks. That's where I was going to go. It's a little unusual, right? You're the elected official. You're the elected where I come from. They call them county attorneys. Mm -hmm. Other places, they call them district attorneys. You're a Commonwealth attorney. Uh, most of them don't actually do the work. You're still in the courtrooms. Yes. Kentucky is unique in that we have Commonwealth attorneys and county attorneys. County attorneys handle our misdemeanor offenses. Commonwealth attorneys only prosecute felony offenses. So uh, I get to focus on the most serious crimes we have. We're also unique in that we have a ton of counties for the size state we are. We have 120 counties. Everyone has their own county attorney. Then we have 57 judicial circuits, and each circuit gets its own Commonwealth attorney. Um, there's only two major cities in Kentucky, that's Louisville and Lexington, 
in Louisville's Commonwealth attorney probably doesn't see the inside of a courtroom very often. With all due respect uh, to my good friend Tom Wine, he is more of an administrator than I am. But once you get outside of Jefferson County, which is Louisville, and Fayette County, which is Lexington, all the other Commonwealth attorneys' offices are small enough that the Commonwealth attorney um, is either part of a small staff like my office, relatively speaking. You know, when you think of a prosecutor's office, generally speaking, people think of much bigger offices with far more attorneys where the the elected official is just that. He's he's a figurehead, but he's not an aligned prosecutor. He's not going to court on a daily basis. I'm in court usually four or five days a week. Um, some of the other Commonwealth attorneys in Kentucky only have one assistant. I don't think we have any jurisdictions where it's just the Commonwealth attorney anymore, but it's not too long ago that that existed. So in many um in many jurisdictions, many counties and circuits in Kentucky, the Commonwealth attorney has he prosecutes whatever comes in the door because there might be only you know one or two other assistants. So, so you're in the courtroom, you're handling major cases along with your your ten assistants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're running the office administratively. Uh, you have to get money right to run the office. Right. Um, when do you sleep? Well. It's the more longer I've done this, the more I've realized that sleep is just as necessary as everything else that I do. <laughs> Luckily, as I'm growing older, I need less of it. But um, you think it would be the opposite, but it's not. Uh, it, it's a challenge, you know, and anybody in Kentucky that is there for any amount of time will attest to the fact that prosecutors, we have to be lobbyists to some degree at least, um, number one, to keep the legislature from breaking our criminal justice system, but more importantly, to get the funds necessary uh, to run the office right now, it's more important than ever because uh, with the economy and the way it's been the last few years coming out of COVID, law offices are starting to hire attorneys again, and our staffs are the only staffs in, you either have public defenders, you have prosecutors, the only ones that get trial experience anymore. So any firm that does litigation is hiring prosecutors and public defenders. You know, I saw, I was doing a little research on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always look for bad things. I couldn't find anything. Um, you didn't look hard enough. No, uh, I'm, I'm not a great researcher. Yeah, there's, uh, I'm sure there's somebody to say something bad. Uh, and, and you were testifying as part of, I think, your duties as a liaison to the legislature about five years ago. And, and you said something that was kind of interesting. I, I think you were talking about budget and, and budget retention of prosecutors and and things like that. And you told the committee that you're speaking to, you're like, and I'll quote you, it says it costs more to pay less. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to retention and running your offices and actually keeping the public safe, what do you mean by that? What's that mean? Well, it means we're a constant training ground and the public defenders are no different. So I'm talking about public service in general here, not just one side of the courtroom or the other, but we are constantly training prosecutors for private practice. They get the experience trying cases for a few years. Uh, then they make those horrible life choices like getting married or buying a house or having a kid. And they still have uh, some of those aren't always choices, but I got you. But the, it costs money is the bottom line. <laughs> so what we pay and, and what we pay right now, you know, incoming base salary for a new attorney straight out of law school in Kentucky is a thousand dollars more than double what I made my first year as, as an assistant. So it has gotten better better in terms of just flat numbers, but the uh, consumer price index is way outgrown uh, those raises. So even though that salary for a new assistant has doubled in, in the last almost 20 years, um, I guess a little over 20 years, 
uh, it still hasn't kept up with inflation. So what it means is that as soon as anybody starts incurring real life bills like mortgages, like tuition, um, we start losing them to higher paying jobs. And the public defender's office is largely the same way. About the, you know, the it used to be the hook was the pension system pension system in Kentucky really doesn't exist in the same manner. It's more of a 401k type pension these days, meaning that the the prosecutors that we're hiring that we have hired for the last 10 or 15 years can take that pension and go anywhere they want with it and, and roll it over into a 401k. So there's no hook to keep them in public service. Um, now we have some federal programs that will forgive student loan debt if they do 10 years. So I've got some that I've managed to hold hold on to for 10 years, but a lot of them will, the minute they get that loan forgiveness, they'll jump ship. And I'm not just referring to my office. I'm talking about every prosecutor, every public defender's office in the state has that same issue. So your, so your job, not only putting uh, bad guys in prison, doing justice, prison doesn't always mean justice, right? There's other, mm-hmm. other, justice, uh, other ways to find justice. Um, you have to balance these funds. You have to keep people uh, in the office. Uh, the criminal justice system costs money, not just your office, to put people in jail or prison costs money, right? And this podcast is about innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, who I would term kind of a solid, hardcore prosecutor, have an innovative program that saves you money, uh, probably has long-term beneficial, very good effects on uh, crime and and recidivism. And it's called the HEART program. Mm -hmm. You and I talked about it on the phone a number of months ago, maybe a year ago. Um, Fascinating story. Tell us about the HEART program and how you got the idea, how it started. Well, let's see. I'm going to have to give us a Cliff Notes version here because I don't think this podcast is long enough that we can hear the whole thing. But Heart... I'll get in trouble by my producer <laughs> if I go too long. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it brief. HEART stands for Heroin Expedited Addiction Recovery and Treatment. That's the acronym that we came up with for HEART. But this came about back before um, the current crisis that we're in, which is primarily dealing with fentanyl and methamphetamine, uh, although heroin hasn't entirely gone away. But the drug epidemic transition from crack cocaine to pain pills to heroin. And when it was in that transition stage from pain pills into heroin, the judges started seeing a lot of the defendants dying, literally dying before we could get the cases through court. So they started locking those defendants up and giving them bonds that were high enough that everybody in the courtroom knew this defendant wasn't going to be able to make the bond. So you have unlimited jail space, I, I presume. So you no, can lock our, those people up and the violent criminals. We built a new jail in Kenton County and it was filled from literally from the only day it wasn't filled was the first day it opened when they had only moved half the prisoners from the old jail into it. But from the day it was built, it's been essentially at capacity, if not beyond capacity. Um, and we were, we were wasting time. We were wasting money. Uh, the way Hart came about is a good friend of mine who at the time was a criminal defense attorney named Burr Travis, um, he and I were. Did you say a good friend, criminal defense attorney? Yeah, I like that. You, no, we get that guy. on tape. <laughs> he's a great guy. Um, and he and I would have lunch together or dinner together periodically and just talk about life in general. And then oftentimes that includes work. And we both were commiserating about the fact that we get these drug defendants and it takes you know, six months to a year to get them through the criminal justice system. The, the wheels of justice just turn slow sometimes, even under the best of circumstances. But we were getting to final sentencing and these 
people that had now been incarcerated for six months to a year were telling the judge, but Your Honor, I've never had drug treatment. When I'm asking, when I'm saying, Judge, this is his third case or his fourth case. Now, granted, they're all drug possessions, but he's obviously not going to make it on probation. So let's just send him to prison so that we don't have to deal with him. Let him be the parole board's problem. And this guy's saying, but I've never got treatment. The Department of Corrections in Kentucky had this ridiculous rule that they wouldn't pay for your drug treatment unless you violate your parole. It's like, well, everybody knows, he's, or I'm sorry, probation. And everybody and their brother knows he's only on probation because of his drug addiction in the first place. But in order to save money, the state had a policy that they weren't going to pay for drug treatment until you messed up one time. But but, but is that really cost more to, to pay less? I mean, it, doing that, aren't they coming back to the system? They're coming I back to jail? They're more. coming back it to was, court? All you were doing was clogging up the court system. More cases. And, you know, this where nobody's expanding my budget or any other prosecutor's budget in order to account for these cases. They're just telling us to do more with less. And so these inmates are sitting in there costing our counties who pay for the jails um, because the state doesn't start paying for inmates until after there's a conviction. The counties are, are bearing the burden of all these costs. And the people are this being warehoused for months at a time with no treatment, um, which has also since changed largely due to the HART program. They've seen the success we've had with it. What we started doing with HART is getting them out on the front end. When somebody got arrested in the first 10 days that they were in jail, in between their arraignment and their preliminary hearing, we were having certified drug treatment counselors come in and do an assessment of their needs. Now, this is uh, an assessment of their addiction. You know, what kinds of drugs are they using? How often are they using uh, everything that goes into your normal drug treatment assessment? But we were also assessing where they were socially. You know, did they have insurance? Did they have a rich uh, grandfather or uncle, somebody that could fund their treatment? Were they a veteran? Were they homeless? All different sorts of grants out there to address uh, certain populations like veterans or like the homeless. Uh, we're looking for any avenue we could to find treatment for them. And at the preliminary hearing, we would agree to an OR bond for that person if they would agree to complete whatever treatment that assessor recommended. So basically, you're like, we're going to let you out if you go do this treatment. Right. And we had, at the time, we had um, one inpatient treatment provider who also had an intensive outpatient program. And then we had two other programs that were just intensive outpatient. So we had three IOP programs, what we call them, one inpatient program. Even if the defendant was being recommended for the inpatient program, that's far better than sitting in jail, make much better use of their time. So initially, I'd say about 90% of the defendants agreed to it. But shortly into the program, they started seeing the benefits, the biggest, which is I don't have to sit in a jail cell. And we now have about 100% compliance or voluntary participation in this program um, where the defendants agree to enroll in the program. Now, this program... So what, so what happens to them if, they, if they're successful? You let them out on OR, they go to treatment. Does the case get dismissed? Or are they coming back to court? What, what happens? And then we'll get to how it works. The ultimate carrot at the end of the case was that we were cutting down periods of... Number one, we were cutting down the sentence. So in Kentucky, you get an amount of prison time, and then you get probation, a probation period. And the idea is you have to stay clean and stay out of trouble for that period of probation. And if you don't, then you have to serve whatever the sentence was. So we were agreeing to a one year, which is our minimum sentence for a felony in Kentucky. And we were cutting down the period of probation supervision from uh, any other cases three to five years, what we typically do, we were cutting that down to two years. I think most studies out there say that if somebody's going to relapse, they're going to do it within two years. So that's the period we were using. Um, and, and as long as they 
did what we asked them to do, not commit new crime and complete their drug treatment, uh, we would agree to give them that one year probated for two year sentence. So they had both a smaller punishment if they screwed up, as well as a smaller period that they had to report to a probation officer. So you, when we originally talked about this, you kind of told me a funny story, which I can see being a prosecutor for a long time myself and a criminal defense lawyer. You said, hey, you were doing this. You started this program. Mm -hmm. You were letting folks out OR if they went to treatment and they were walking out the back door of the jail and some of them were disappearing. Well, that what I was starting to say before is we've had several evolutions of the program to address problems that we found. And that was probably the biggest problem that we found first was the transportation, that we were letting people out of prison or out of our jail and telling them to report to this treatment program. And sometimes their drug dealer was the person picking them up from the jail. Needless to say, a large percentage of those people never made it to treatment. And we'd have to put warrants out for them. They'd end up with new cases when they got picked up on the warrant because they had drugs in their pocket. And, and it Which was- cost more money, right, more personnel. And it just, that was a major flaw in the program. So what we did, is we started holding everybody overnight, one more night in jail. So we scheduled all of our drug cases on Wednesday for a preliminary hearing, and we don't let them out Wednesday when they get their bond reduced. The judge's order says you get out of jail on Thursday on the condition that you get on the tank bus, which tank is Transit Authority in Northern Kentucky. It's our public transportation system. They agreed to send one bus. His first route of the day every Wednesday was to come out to the detention center, pick up everybody in the heart program, and take them to one of the three treatment providers we work with. So we were literally providing door-to-door -door transportation. And of course, a lot of the defendants would say, well, can I have my mom or my dad or my buddy or whoever pick me up at jail? And we were saying, no, we're not taking a chance on that. You spend one more night, you get on the bus tomorrow, and you go to the treatment. How, so how'd you get that worked out? That's Sounds like it costs money to public transit bringing a bus. Well, we're already paying for that bus driver. You know, he's already working that shift every every Thursday morning anyway. So it really wasn't an, an additional cost to our transit system. But the counties were seeing the savings and getting these folks out of jail. So instead of sitting in the jail cell on the county dime for six months to a year waiting for their case to get over, the county loves this program. I initially got them to commit $10,000 to fund those um, assessments where the counselor comes in and does the assessments. Well, that cost quickly went away. We didn't even spend the whole $10,000 because one of the providers that we were working with was the was sending their counselors to do the assessments, they quickly learned that, hey, we're feeding ourselves so many clients that we're turning around and billing um, the Affordable Care Act for that it this is a moneymaker for some, us. Some of the clients have insurance, some of them right. have some, affordable care, some Medicaid. are private pay, some have private health insurance that'll pay for it. Um, so all of a sudden, they're making money off it. So they're door. going, hey, I tell you what, just let us keep doing the assessments. We won't even bill you for that counselor going out to the jail. It was a win win for everybody. So that cost went away. Uh, we've never, you know, this whole program now, it, it's uh, fast forward several years, and now the jail has realized that they can save so much money and so much hassle that oftentimes the jail will now transport somebody without even waiting until Thursday morning when the tank bus comes. If they have somebody that they know is going to an inpatient program, they'll drive them right to the inpatient program, which fortunately is only about a mile down the road from our jail. Making space, right. beds Make, in jail for people that belong there, right. like and, violent criminals and 
others. Right. That gets back to why I'm doing this is, you know, I like to think of myself as a tough on crime prosecutor. Why am I doing this? Well, I never I was actually kind of scared to talk to you the first time. You know, we do some <laughs> criminal justice reform and I'm like, oh, this Rob Sanders guy, he's a tough on crime prosecutor. But this sounds like it's tough on crime because maybe you're reducing it in the long run. The bottom line is that I want to save prison cells for the people that really need to be there. You know, if I fill them full of drug offenders, then we're not going to have prison cells available for the rapists and the robbers, the murderers, the child molesters, the child pornographers. Those are the people that I really want to put in prison to keep the community safe from. You know, we have to draw a line between who we're afraid of and who we're mad at versus who we're just annoyed with. And I never went to law school. I went to law school to be a prosecutor, but I never wanted to be a prosecutor because I was thinking, yeah, I want to get out there someday and prosecute these drug possessors. Now that was the least, this is, you know, prosecuting drug possession cases is more of a nuisance to me than it is something that I enjoy doing. And ironically, I spend more time talking about the heart program than I do any of the murder trials that I win or anything like that. But, um, but I think it's an effective program because it saves taxpayers money, because it frees up prison space for the hardcore criminals, because it addresses addiction and gives people second chances to avoid prison. Sometimes, and it's not 100% effective, although we've seen great success. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Do you have any like stats? Because this sounds like something that can be exported, right? It counties absolutely are, can. Counties around Kentucky, counties in Arizona could, you know, I, I mean, it's probably difficult or different in each each locality, mm -hmm. but it can be done. Well, we started off with about a 50% success rate when we were only partnering with drug treatment providers. And um, that, I think if you get into drug treatment programs and talk about success rates, anytime you have a drug pre treatment program that's 50% or higher, doesn't relapse or doesn't recidivate back into the system, that's probably a, a good drug program. However, our uh, recidivism rates started there and we improved on it by partnering with a, an organization, a charitable organization in Northern Kentucky called the Life Learning Center. They're located in Covington, which is the biggest city in my jurisdiction. And they provide wraparound services focused on getting people ready for a job and getting people employed. And we have increased our success rate. And when I say success, I mean, people that have not um, reoffended and not gone back into the criminal justice system. We've got it down now to where anybody that comes out of drug treatment goes partner enrolls in the programming at the Life Learning Center. If they complete the Life Learning Center's program, our recidivism rate is now down to eight percent, which is unheard of when it comes to the criminal justice system. That and when I say eight percent, that's what it was for 2022 for people that completed the program. Not everybody completes the program. Um, some people wash out of the program, reoffend, relapse, but for people that complete the program, it's down to eight percent. I don't think there's a way to be tougher on crime than creating an 8% recidivism rate. I mean, it's probably hard to tell, but if, if in my view, in my experience, I'm sure yours is the same, not getting back into the system, not breaking into houses to mm -hmm. steal a TV or money in order to buy their drugs. I mean, it's not only reducing the drug crimes, reducing some of these other, I guess, quote unquote, nonviolent crimes that, that, that are associated with the, the drug program. It's amazing. And I mean, I think that is tough on crime. Right. Some of the, when I say not everyone is successful, some of the people that weren't successful were people that went out and they just were criminals. They broke into somebody's house or somebody's business and they caught some other felony charge other than drug possession um, that got them sent to prison. So they washed out. Uh, but the vast majority of our drug possession defendants wouldn't be in the system if it weren't for drugs. And the biggest uh, 
crime deterrence that I've found is a job. The vast majority of criminals are not employed. And if you can get people employed, keep them busy and minimize their downtime, uh, get them paying their own bills, earning, paying taxes, earning a living, uh, that's a great disincentive to go out and, and rob a store or break into a house or do any one of the other numerous things that addicts manage to do when they are in active um, addiction, when they're using. Uh, that's what we're trying to prevent. Rob, man, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, little things, little ideas become innovations mm -hmm. that, that um, you know, have significant effect on the criminal justice system. I appreciate uh, you being here. I appreciate We could talk about it forever sure. because, like, there's no one size fits all answer to the crime in the criminal justice system. But man, if you're always moving forward, and it sounds like this, when this heart program started, it was good. It's even better now. We're moving forward and we're going to try, hopefully people will watch this podcast and go, hey, we could do something like that in this uh, jurisdiction and we can spread this around, you know, America, frankly. Yeah, we've had several jurisdictions visit already. I think anybody that's interested in it should look into the Life Learning Center and what they do. Then they can contact me, talk about how we set up the drug treatment programs. I think any uh, jurisdiction, big or small, has the ability to replicate this program. Kentucky's already starting to try and do it in other jurisdictions, um, but especially any jurisdiction that's got any kind of even remotely metropolitan city with drug treatment providers has that ability. Well, before we wrap up, you just said Kentucky again. Uh, I think bourbon when I think Kentucky, but maybe not everybody does. Tell us something interesting for our viewers about either Kenton County, Kentucky, something that we wouldn't know just being from Arizona. Well, Kenton County, for a point of reference, is the most northern county in northern Kentucky. We're at the very top of the state, right across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. That's my jurisdiction. So we get a we get rural very fast, but we get a lot of the bleed over criminal element from uh, Ohio that does come across the river once in a while. We want to build a wall right there, uh, you know, along our northern border. We haven't <laughs> quite got the funding for that yet. Um, but about the state, you know, we're coming up on Derby Week. I would be remiss if I didn't mention horses when it comes to Kentucky. This Saturday will be the the running of the Kentucky Derby, which of course goes hand in hand with our great tradition of bourbon in the state. Uh, so if you've never had a chance to visit Kentucky and check out the Kentucky Derby, you need to put it on your bucket list. It is a once in a lifetime type experience in some place that isn't replicated anyplace else in the world. Well, I think I'm going to have to do that. Um, again, I'd love to, I'd love to continue this. We could talk forever, but I want to thank you, you know, for being here. If you all want to learn more about what Right on Crime does, uh, Visit us at our website, rightoncrime.com, just like it sounds, rightoncrime.com. And if you want to learn more about the Heart Program and what the Commonwealth Attorney for the 16th uh, Judicial Circuit in, Ari in Arizona, that's where I'm from, <laughs> 16th Judicial Circuit in Kentucky does, uh, visit, do you have a website? I do. It's kentonprosecutor.org. So Kenton Prosecutor, K-E-N-T-O-N. Prosecutor.org, correct. Kentonprosecutor.org. Visit it, see what they're doing in Kentucky, and uh, let's make it better everywhere. Rob, thanks again for coming to Austin. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Kurt. Love, love being here.